Hello, and welcome to episode 41 of Tech Swamp. We have our host and friendly membership team here today. Hey, Brad. Why, hello there. Hello, Caitlin. What's up? You know, just membership chilling. Just chilling. And of course, myself, Alex. This month, we're sitting down with Ashley, Dirk, and Rixie for a debrief on the Epic v. Apple trial. We'll also be talking competition and standard central patents, or SEPs, as a refresh for our upcoming mini AppCon number two. That's right, AppCon is coming to a Zoom near you once again, and we'll be discussing all things competition and SEPs. But before we get into that, we're going to hit tech history and run through some DC headlines. In honor of Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, we're celebrating the contributions of A.J. Bott, the inventor of the Universal Serial Bus, otherwise known as the USB. 26 years ago, the USB hit the scene. Before USB technology, a computer would usually only have one or two serial ports, in addition to a parallel port, mouse and keyboard ports, and, in some cases, a joystick port. The new USB port represented a standardized way to connect a wide range of devices while offering significant advantages in speed over other connection types. Speaking of standards, (coughs) SEPs, when the USB hit the scene, it was not the standard and actually took a while for widespread adoption. The first generation of Apple Inc.'s iMac, introduced in 1998, changed that. By making a popular computer that used only USB ports, Apple essentially drove other manufacturers to adopt the standard. Since then, most printers, scanners, keyboards, and even portable flash memory drives have used USB. And the rest is tech history. That sound means it's time for What's Brewing in DC. Caitlin and Brad, what are the top tech headlines? Senator Amy Klobuchar has introduced another bill aimed to protect consumer data privacy, specifically against big tech companies like Facebook and Google. The bill, which has bipartisan support, is titled Social Media Privacy Protection and Consumer Rights Act, and would force websites to grant users greater control over their data and allow them to opt out of data tracking and collection. This bill was first introduced in 2019 after the Cambridge Analytica scandal and would also require platforms to write their terms of service agreements in plain language so users understand what they're accepting by using the platforms. A similar bill has been introduced in the House, but this bill also instructs platforms to give researchers and the Federal Trade Commission access to more detailed ad libraries. We'll keep you posted about this legislation in future episodes of TechSwap. And last week, the House of Representatives voted to create an independent commission to investigate the January 6th insurrection. The bill will now head to the Senate, where its future is unknown. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell publicly opposed the legislation one day after former President Trump released a statement calling for he, as well as Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, to reject the commission. The bill will need support of all Senate Democrats, as well as 10 Senate Republicans, to pass. For more information, head to the show notes. After having to deal with some serious sanctions, Chinese tech giant Huawei is making the move to software. This comes from a 2019 action by former President Trump, where he placed Huawei on an export blacklist, throwing a roadblock in the race to 5G by blocking their ability to produce the chips necessary to compete. President Biden has not indicated any plans to reverse the sanctions, prompting their sudden transition to a software-focused business model. And that's all for What's Brewing.
as we mentioned earlier, we're being joined by a friend of the pod and communications director, Ashley Durkin Rixie, for a debrief of the Epic v. Apple trial and a quick rundown and refresh on standard essential patents, SEPs, ahead of our competition and SEP mini AppCon number two. But before we talk about all of the things, hi, Ashley. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Happy to be back on the pod. We are happy to have you. Uh, it's a good time for it. We got a lot to talk about. So uh, yes, let's, we do. let's dive in. Um, let's maybe start with a little bit of background. Um, how how did we get here? Why? How did this trial come about? Um, you know, what's interesting about this case is this for an antitrust tech case came about very fast and came to trial very fast. Um, if you've been reading any news about the Facebook and Google cases, those are not slated to begin until 2023. Wow. So the fact that this came about in basically 18 months is kind of a shock. Um, and how we got here was um, in August of 2019, uh, Epic Games, decided they were frustrated with the Apple App Store and that they their customers had to pay for things like V-Bucks and other in-app purchases using the Apple in-app purchase interface. Um, what Epic wanted was for them to go through the Epic Store or any other payment option other than Apple. And the way they decided to address this was by putting a hotfix into the next update of Fortnite that did that and redirected them to the Epic Store, which is a violation of the App Store guidelines. So Apple reacted by removing them from the App Store, and then it turned into this, which is kind of a calculated uh, legal proceeding on the part of Epic to bring about some of the issues that some app developers have with the structure and commission fees that Apple and Google, I should note also that they have a pending suit against Google uh, for the Play Store, uh, take with in-app purchases and subscriptions and other things within the App Store. So it's solely around the 30% commission on in-app purchases that impacts developers who make large buckets of money. Um, so they are, do not hit the small business program threshold of 15%. It's people with well over a million dollars in revenue that are hit with 30%. And Epic wanted to prove that this is anti-competitive and that the way that Apple has structured the App Store has allowed them to have a monopoly on iOS App Store distribution, and they decided to take it to court. So... We were talking about like the 30% and you mentioned that um, both Apple and Google adjusted their price for um, small to medium size um, app developers on their platform, um, which kind of feels like um, that's kind of what Epic was trying to prove is that, oh, they're not willing to make these concessions or they're not trying to work with us. But then they did prove, Apple did prove that they can work with small to medium size um, app developers and they can can kind of make accommodations for them. Um, so so that now that Apple and Google kind of did that, what what is Epic trying to prove? What is what is the end goal for them in all of this now that that kind of talking point 
um, can't really be referenced for small to medium sized developers. Right. And that's kind of what has become interesting about this case is it really turned from Epic's initial, you know, complaint filing was that this was sort of behalf on on behalf of all app developers, great and small. But as we've gotten into the meat of the case, it's more about big brands that are paying the 30%, who are making millions, who just just said, no, I want to keep all my money possible. You know, and it's they just don't feel that they should be paying this 30%. It's very similar to the complaints that Spotify has had. Mm-hmm. around the same issue. So it's not about what happens or lowering fees for small developers, even to the point where uh, the judge in the case, Judge Yvonne Gonzalez Rogers, who is in the Ninth District of California, so the Oakland area, she asked him, Sweeney, the CEO of Epic Games, under oath, do you know the impact that what you're asking for would have on the rest of the app economy? People making, you know, delivery apps, healthcare apps, everyone else. And he said, no. And she followed that up by asking him if Apple had offered you a special deal to pay nothing, would you have taken it? And he said, yes. Because Mm -hmm. that's how Epic, coming from a video game background, has operated with video game companies for years. Um, I used to work in the video game industry, so I'm very familiar with the commission structure there, and it's individualized. There is no one developer agreement for everyone. It's something that is negotiated one-on-one and quite often kept under NDAs because it is a one-on-one negotiation. So that's the world they were used to. And they kind of balked that Apple wouldn't give them a special deal and wouldn't negotiate individual developer terms. You've definitely watched the trial pretty closely and are the expert on all things Epic v. Apple here at ACT. Um, And since we're recording this on the final day of the trial, we need all the details. Can you give us a breakdown? I know you covered some of it, but a a TLDR, uh, if you will, of of what you've heard in the courtroom and what you think our members really need to know about this. Sure, absolutely. One of the things that I thought was particularly interesting from the Apple point of view is, one, they gave a great history lesson about how quickly the platform market has grown and the app economy and going from being able to review a couple hundred thousand apps to now millions. And that it's, you know, it's grown leaps and bounds and they've had to scale along with this. So when we're talking about sort of this blanket developer agreement, well, if Apple had to negotiate each individual developer agreement. They're looking at negotiating almost 2 million developer agreements. And is that really practical for a business? It's like, imagine if every gym member went to their local gym and said, yeah, I want to join, but here are my terms for joining. You know, they they would basically tell you, yeah, you can go now. So there's there's some questions around that. And then I think one of the other fascinating things is all the APIs, security tools, accessibility tools. And one of the biggest things is sort of that stamp of approval of consumer trust of being in 
the App Store. And that's how smaller developers can compete besides bigger players because the average consumer is like, okay, sure, I don't know this company, but this app looks pretty good. I'm going to take a flyer on it. And mm -hmm. they don't have to feel bad if they end up not liking it, that they can uninstall it. Or if it's something they've subscribed to and they decide they don't want to subscribe anymore, all they do is cancel the subscription within the app store. And it makes it easier for consumers to try and buy, which is really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you also mentioned some fun details that perhaps are worth sharing. <laughs> Would love yeah. to know those. <laughs> Um, I will say, so the judge in this case kind of gave a blanket statement at the beginning as it started. She said, you know, when we're in proceeding, this is a serious place, but it doesn't mean we can't have a laugh now and then. Um, one of the things I've greatly enjoyed over the last three weeks is the morning ritual of everyone saying good morning to each other. <laughs> it is very pronounced, and she goes around and says good morning to every person. They have to introduce themselves. Um does Agent Peely he... introduce himself at that time, or when does <laughs> when does that happen? Oh, he made a big splash. So, <laughs> in, in Epic's presentation, um, there was discussion of one of their Fortnite, I don't know if it's a character or just a skin, uh, Peely, who is a banana man, for all <laughs> intents and purposes. Great. And there was some discussion about whether or not that Peely was nude. <laughs> sort of in that way of like, you look at a dog and are all dogs naked because they don't wear oh, clothes? Right. Or is it just... And so when they showed Peely on screen, Epic put him in a suit in his Agent Peely mode where he is a special agent because, as they mentioned, we felt it would be more appropriate for a court proceeding. <laughs> well, it just... <laughs> went wild. <laughs> I also know from the daily reports that there was also some talk of fashion in the courtroom, which I feel like is a fun fact. Not something you would anticipate in an antitrust like trial, and yet. <laughs> well, I think it's, it is, because you're missing, you know, we're missing the visual. This right. uh, proceeding was not done on Zoom. It was done small level in person, but some previous pretrial hearings on Zoom had suffered from a little Zoom bombing and some copyright issues when some of the proceedings showed up on channels where they shouldn't have been mirrored. Right. So we were on ye old phone system. I have not spent this much time on the phone <laughs> since 1995. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we've so so we've been hearing um, both Epic's side and Apple side um, over the last three weeks. Today was the last day of the trial. So what what comes next? I mean, when do we expect answers? This is now um, the judge's ruling that we're waiting for at this point, right? Yes, it is. Um, we are recording this on Monday, May twenty fourth. Um, the both sides have until June first to shore up all their documents, make sure everything is there that she needs to look at and has been submitted. She has about 4,500 pages of testimony and evidence to go through wow. to make her decision. In just addition a, just to- a go, Just that's a few. Like, that's a beach read. Are you serious? Come on. <laughs> that's a morning read. You can knock, yeah, you can, <laughs> knock, you can knock that out while you're watching Netflix at home. 
Um, <laughs> uh, she also is moving to another trial um, starting tomorrow, and she sort of has a policy that when she's in trial, she doesn't work on other cases in order to keep her memory fresh and make sure that she's not conflating anything. So she said today, it's going to take a while. Um, mm-hmm. This is a heavy case, heavy on evidence, heavy on data that is weighing a huge issue and could be really important precedent to how we talk about technology and antitrust in the future. So she knows and understands the gravity of this ruling. So she intends to give it the seriousness and the heft of thought that it deserves. Um, she had make a, made a joke that she was hoping to get it done by August 13th, which was the date that the epic hot fix had happened, but uh. I think no one found that as funny as she did. Um, <laughs> she had to re-explain it today. But she, I think we're looking at, you know, three months and a minimum. I would be shocked if it came out faster than that. I, she seems to be very deliberate in her considerations, and she still had a lot of questions today, which is why we did um, a procedure known as a hot tub mm-hmm. in lieu of traditional closing arguments, which is where both sides do a, an agreed-upon point-counterpoint debate of facts for the judge, where the judge can ask questions of both, and they're each kind of answer in tandem in turn, and they hone down on the two most critical areas to her decision, which is what is the market we're looking at Mm -hmm. and what are the remedies to consider? What would Epic want to be the outcome, but also what would the impact of that outcome be on the rest of the app ecosystem and Apple? Absolutely. So more to come. Um, She also noted that the Epic and Google Play Store trial is coming up soon and being uh, handled by another colleague of hers. So we'll see when that gets started, if that gives us any more illumination into where things may land. Yeah, absolutely. And three months seems like a long time, but I think between the kind of content that we're going to see coming out over the next few months and weeks about sort of what happened during the trial, um, conversations, you know, about what, you know, what the decision could mean in the long term. I think we're going to see a lot of thought leadership in the next few months around that. So um, we certainly will stay tuned and we will keep everyone informed. Um, And as always, uh, check out our show notes to see some of the stuff that I think is relevant to this conversation that we've had today. Um, So that kind of covers a lot of what we wanted to talk about um, as it pertains to competition. So now just really quickly want to move to uh, to SEPs really quick uh, just before mini AppCon number two. Um, so first things first, SEPs, otherwise known as standard essential patents, are open consensus-based technological standards. So 5G, 4G, Wi-Fi, and as we mentioned in tech history, the USB. Um, in order to have a piece of technology considered a standard essential patent or a SEP, we rely on trusted standard setting organizations, SSOs, to develop the consensus technology standards that allow for interoperability between products and services. And because of the role that standards play in fueling innovation, small businesses need to be able to utilize these standards to compete in the market. And while a technology standard develops within the SSOs, companies voluntarily offer their patented technology to be a part of the standard. 
Small businesses like our members who use any standard like Wi-Fi need to license the patents in order to utilize the standards that contain them. A patent needed to practice a standard is generally considered essential to the standard, hence the term standard essential patents or SEP. Having a patent declared as essential to a standard confers market power on a SEP owner. This means commitments to license access to those standards on fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory, otherwise known as FRAND, terms are necessary to discipline that market power and to prevent SEP owners from gouging innovators that use that standard. Without FRAND protections, we've seen certain SEP owners perpetrate market distortions that harm the small businesses trying to use them, and then it goes on to harm consumers by reducing the quality and quantity of end products and services. FRAND promises are an important check on anti-competitive abuse, and ignoring them can constrain competition in ways that harms competitors and consumers, which antitrust law generally prohibits. We're going to cover a ton more during our week two briefing, including what we're asking for from Congress. But in the meantime, you can head to our show notes. We have a ton of content around SEPs, Fran, and competition. Ashley, I know you were here for Epic v. Apple, but do you have anything to add on SEPs? Um, Other than yes to all of the above, ironically (laughs) enough, um, FTC v. Qualcomm, which longtime pod listeners will know was a landmark SEP abuse trial got brought up in Epic v. Apple as a sort of the precedent on what remedies could be. Um, But the judge did note it was overturned on appeal, so she didn't want to hear any more about it. But it was, (laughs) you know, the Venn diagram happened. Absolutely. It's all it's all antitrust. Uh, It is. Yeah, it's fascinating. and, and we're going to talk about it uh, during Mac 2. So please join us for that. Um, as a reminder, it is uh, in June. So um, please reach out if you are interested in learning more or check our show notes. Um, Ashley, thank you so much for joining us again to talk all things Epic v. Apple and also SEPs. We will see you in Random Identifier. Thanks for having me. And now it's time for Random Identifier. Ashley, since you are our guest, you are up first. Well, thank you. So I, in true, there is a lobby for everything news. (laughs) I read today in Politico Influence that UFOs have a lobby. UFOs, like, yes. Yes. UFOs. Is Tom DeLonge the head? Is he the director of the UFO lobby? He is uh, not, but he's involved. No. Oh, um, thank God. I was worried. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Steve Bassett is a lobbyist for the Paradigm Research Group, and he is the only registered lobbyist who deals with unidentified aerial phenomena. And Amazing. he has been trying for years to get more disclosure out of the federal government, particularly around extraterrestrial presence engaging the human race and he's been working on it since the 90s one of his biggest allies was hillary clinton who is a ufo freak it's it's actually true um there are articles i am delighted by this news (laughs) yeah she's really into ufos and he said that her losing the election was a terrible blow for him because he really (laughs) felt like this was the chance 
Um, <laughs> Harry Reid has also talked to him. I definitely um, knew Harry Reid was involved because he he had been involved in like releasing like voting for a bill to like release information about UFOs <laughs> or something like that. Like he yep. he has been lit about UFOs. Yep, and Bassett has credited Tom DeLong for his efforts in raising this. So as we get closer to these documents that are going to be released as part of the disclosure through the Biden administration, he is really having a moment as the UFO lobbyist. And so today I'm going to announce on the podcast, I am leaving ACT to join (laughs) Big Alien. I am going to be starting a coalition for cryptids. Um, We are going to work on crypto for cryptids and i believe <laughs> mothman and i will be doing a skilling event in west virginia this is Wonderful. great the hear. workforce revolution event can have a part two yeah yes yes for mothman. Always, <laughs> obviously there's always a place for technology in the cryptid coalition but, <laughs> you know, there, there really is a lobby for everything i am i'm just excited for john Talong to make his debut in congress um that's yes. what I've got from this. Very excited. Aliens um, exist. Aliens exist. Um, speaking of uh, music and aliens, Brad. <laughs> I'm actually throwing an absolute curveball. There is no. You're not going to talk week. about music? Yeah, I'm really sorry to ruin your perfect seg. Seriously. But <laughs> I, I am in my home state of Michigan this week for a wedding that I'm going to. So my random identifier is just nostalgia. I'm at the old childhood home, and I got to watch a 50-year-old Phil Mickelson win a golf tournament yesterday. I felt like I was like 10 years old again. It, it was crazy. Aww. That is That's so great. sweet. That is sweet. I watched with my grandma. She taught me golf. Yeah, n- nostalgia is the theme this month. Unfortunately, not not music. Did you get to have any like Dunkaroos as a snack or like anything that might add to that? Wait, uh, nothing crazy. Some some like pub nuts, you know. Okay, yeah, that's <laughs> this nostalgic. Is, that is nostalgic, and this is a hundred percent true. I was at a wedding last weekend, and on my way home, I stopped at a Seven Eleven, and I picked up Dunkaroos. No, no you didn't. One hundred percent. So it's the weird. Truth. Yeah. yeah it's Brad, wild. what was your handicap <laughs> as a mini uh, golfer as a child? <laughs> oh gosh, I I don't know if I was uh, I was in the system, you know. But it was probably right around the bar. I'll tell you that much. Um, that's amazing. Uh, Caitlin, what do you have for us? Well, sadly, mine isn't like anything that's like, you know, fun and uplifting. It's something that's going to terrify everyone. Yes. <laughs> that's fun and uplifting, I think. <laughs> so allegedly... Um, the cicadas that have resurfaced after 17 years along the East Coast, like, first of all, I just want to say I haven't seen any of these in my area in D.C. Like, they just are not here. So I don't believe that cicadas are real. So that's (laughs) number one. Yes. But number two, (laughs) the ones that apparently are real um, are being exposed to a fungus Um, that essentially um, does something to their reproductive organs um, and basically acts as an amphetamine. So they are vigorously um, mating with each other and they are not discriminating um, if it is a male or female cicada, which is obviously not what has happened in the past. They have 
not encountered this fungus before. So basically, um, they're going to be able to um, be reproducing for longer thanks to this fungus. It's something that's going to sustain um, their mating process. Um, and essentially, <laughs> their reproductive organs are going to fall off. Um, oh so God. that will be something that is going to be really... Um, you know, probably trauma inducing for many people uh, up and down the East Coast. So excited to probably not witness any of this since apparently <laughs> I am not allowed to see any cicadas. So, okay. I just like, can you imagine you've like been in the ground for 17 years <laughs> and you come out and your one sort of like biological directive is to create new cicadas. And like, what if you end up in a situation where you do that, but you have mated with a partner that does not produce like eggs or however that happens i assume they lay eggs right but like what if you mate with a partner that doesn't so you've like done the thing that you were like kind of supposed to do but like not really it's like, like literally you, you had imagine? one job you yeah. had one job and then you're just gonna die <laughs> yeah. like and then like that's the end <laughs> but in their mind they think they did it you started with the phrase can you imagine <laughs> And, like, I feel like people who quarantined all year maybe can imagine. This is also part of a plot line of the video game I am playing right now. Okay. <laughs> I'm playing, I'm replaying Mass Effect, and there's a whole plot line with one of the alien races got taken out by a genophage that was a virus that inhibited their ability to breed. Oh my, oh my gosh. gosh. We're all and doomed. Although, We're all doomed. <laughs> we all know Carmine will be thrilled that the buffet yeah. will go on longer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring us back to a moment of nostalgia, not quite as pure as Brad's. However, what I want to talk about is the resurgence of emo and scene culture that the youths are bringing back. Um, Iconic. It it mm -hmm. seems important. It made it to TikTok, so I know it's real. Sure um yeah and <laughs> what i want i want to say two things about this and the first thing is that what i appreciate about this new resurgence is that it seems to be more diverse and inclusive than when i was a youth in the early to mid 2000s um which is very cool um i want mm -hmm. to very directly mention the linda lindas um because <laughs> they're delightful um and also just like very cool to see young women a in a punk band and b um just like talking about things that should be talked about um like racism and um and then the other thing that i want to talk about um which uh is very important to me is that olivia rodrigo's album came out and a i didn't know who she was literally i did not know who she was two weeks ago uh, and then she was on snl and i learned i was who gonna she say was. yeah she was on yeah. snl you had to know that yeah so that's when i learned who she was and i was like why are these songs great um, and so then her album came out and then I listened to it. And I think what I just like can't get over is how an 18 year old today captured how I felt in 2005. Um, it's just like really amazing to me. And I guess this is a moment to say great job, Olivia. Um, and also and true art is timeless. <laughs> true art is timeless. And um, I, uh, I, I kept a lot of, uh, things from my days as a young emo youth um so glad to know that one day it was all worth it and that now those things are cool again like i implement have a blanket them, yeah implement them in your current yeah situation i'm gonna bring them back 
Alright guys, that's it for Tech Swamp. I'm ending it there. <laughs> if you heard anything on here that piqued your interest, please head over to our website and make your way to the podcast section. We'll have notes on today's episode that include links to all the good stuff. And of course, we want to give a shout out to Brad Goodall, who composed the podcast Awesome Music. Thank you, Brad. It's a subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. And of course, we would love a rate and review. Five stars only, please. <laughs> and that's all for today, folks. Everyone, say bye. 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 Bye.